0: Hi, I'm Adam Sanford. I'm an academic life coach and professor in Los Angeles. And I'm Dinur Bloom. I'm a college professor in Los Angeles. And this is Learning Made Easier, a podcast where we discuss how we learn and how we teach and how they overlap. Welcome back to Learning Made Easier. This is episode 147, how to stop being afraid of mistakes too many students and too many educators are afraid of mistakes for students a mistake seems to say oh you're not good enough or you're a failure or you're incapable of learning and for teachers mistakes seem to say there's a problem with my lesson plan or a problem with the curriculum or a problem with my ability to teach but mistakes are actually one of the cornerstones of how learning happens when we make a mistake it provides us with information that we then use to figure out, all right, what went wrong? And how do we avoid going wrong in the future? A mistake, it's just a normal part of what happens when we first practice something that we're unfamiliar with.
1: We also know from the research that mistakes are a crucial part of the learning process, but too many people demonize and condemn mistake-making instead of recognizing it for what it is, a natural and normal part of how human beings learn. It does not benefit our students to believe that mistakes are the end of the world, nor does it help them when they don't have a mindset that can accept failure and learn from it. Part of our job as educators is to help them develop that mindset, as well as the tools needed to work with mistakes instead of fighting and avoiding them. So how do we get from mistakes are the worst thing in the world to a situation where mistakes are normalized and treated as part of the process?
0: In a recent Edutopia article, which we'll link to in the show notes, Yuki Terada discusses the research on what happens in the brain when we make a mistake, as well as ways to create mistake friendly classrooms. They outline six strategies to make the mistake friendly classroom a reality for students and educators, including acknowledging the fear is real, working in the zone of proximal development or ZPD, tapping into passion and curiosity, actively modeling mistakes, encouraging rough draft thinking, and grading fewer things. So Denor and I will go into each one of these strategies now.
1: Acknowledge the fear is real. The culture of the United States especially is really big on the fear of failure. Add in the fear of looking incompetent, and you get a situation where the brain's problem solving centers actually begin to shut down. If a student is afraid of looking stupid in class, their fear centers overwhelming their ability to do the things that will help them learn. So first, we have to address this issue. To do this, we need to give students tools to help them calm and reduce their fears and mistakes and the public effects they're afraid they'll experience if they make them. Tell students about Josh Kaufman's research, which we discussed in episode 11, which talks about how early confusion is an indicator of learning, not of being stupid or incapable. Have them work on replacing the thought, I must be stupid, with I am learning. Have a best mistake of the week contest. What mistake this week helped students break through a barrier or look at a situation or an assignment in a different way? Celebrate mistake making as a central part of how they learn so they can learn to see it that way instead of beating themselves up.
0: Next work in the zone of proximal development or zpd now according to wested.org the zpd is the space and i'm quoting here the space between what a learner can do without assistance and what a learner can do with adult guidance or in collaboration with more capable peers unquote so when students are learning in this space they are working on problems that are challenging but not beyond their abilities they're just beyond the boundaries of their current knowledge set So a problem or a question that requires students to explore possible answers to the question by using knowledge they already have, but which does not on its own provide a ready answer is a problem that sits in the zone of proximal development. Having the possibility of failure due to the possibility of choosing a plausible but incorrect answer also helps students figure out not only that certain answers are incorrect, but also why they are incorrect and that increases their ability to understand and work with the topic. For example, in a sociology classroom you might pose the question, how do we address racism in our community. And some students will have answers about dealing with economic issues like poverty and job availability, while others will talk about police brutality and still others will talk about social standards for beauty and attractiveness so which answer is right. Well, that should bring on a discussion where each student examines the proposed answers and decides, often in conversation with others, which ones are most important or most actionable right now. And that requires them to listen to what other people's ideas are too, not just their own knowledge. They have to go beyond it. There's the zone of proximal development.
1: Tap into students' passion and curiosity. A 2012 study shows that the more curious a person is, the more able they are, to deal with uncertainty and ambiguity. Often, the fear of making mistakes comes, in part, from a low tolerance for uncertainty. If we can increase students' curiosity, it should decrease the fear of making mistakes. One way to do this is to use student surveys early in the term to find out what your students are interested in. If you find out you have four or five musicians in your sociology classroom, allow them to do their research paper on the meaning of music in a cultural context. If your survey reveals you have several students who are deeply interested in the beauty industry in your marketing classroom allow them to do their research paper on the marketing effects of sex appeal being used in advertising over two or three decades. Another avenue is to give students autonomy in the classroom, let them choose what kinds of assignments they're going to do if they have some freedom of choice that also allows them to go where their own curiosity and passion lead them. And they're much more likely to be able to cope with the mistakes they're going to make because their passion leads them to care about the result of the work beyond just the grade.
0: Another thing that they suggest is to actively model how to make mistakes now for some educators, this sounds like a tall order we don't like making mistakes any more than our students do. But if we can show that making a mistake is not the end of the world, and that we can handle it that goes a long way in demonstrating to students how to handle it when they too make mistakes. A comparison of how teachers in the US and teachers in China and Japan handle mistake-making is really eye-opening. In a study in 2007, researchers found that American teachers tended to point out errors to students when the answer was wrong, often publicly in the classroom, rather than allowing the student time to discover their error, work through it, and correct it. And this led to students in American classrooms getting extremely tense and anxious about making any mistakes at all because they were afraid they might be seen as stupid. In Chinese classrooms, on the other hand, teachers were more likely to say you will make mistakes. The important thing is learning how to see them and correct them on your own, and this led to students noticing their own mistakes and learning how to correct them. So one suggestion for modeling mistake making is allow students to see you working out problems or writing in real time. Don't pre-prepare an equation. Work it out on the board in real time. Allow students to see you hesitate and go back and correct errors in your original working out and then explain how you figured out the errors, as well as admitting that you made mistakes. If you're teaching writing, let the students see you try to write that introduction and struggle with it. Seeing our confusion, our hesitation, our oh wait that doesn't work, let me try, all of this will help students realize they're not the only ones stopping starting and self-doubting and that's really, really powerful.
1: Encourage rough draft thinking. When we label something as rough draft, students know we mean this is something it's okay to make mistakes on. You aren't being graded on this yet. This is a place for you to work out your initial ideas, even though they're not fully formed. Telling students that their questions during class, their initial attempt at a problem set, and their first or second tried articulating an idea is rough draft thinking. This allows students to feel less stressed. Nobody expects a rough draft to be perfect or even halfway polished. This also allows teachers to layer in the idea that learning is not instantaneous. For students who tend to think fast equals smart, please refer to our episode three, Learning is Not a Race, saying this is rough draft thinking time also allows students to realize that talking through ideas which aren't fully formed yet is beneficial and helpful. Being wrong now allows you to learn instead of feeling targeted for not already knowing
0: everything. Finally, grade less stuff. Now, by this, we don't mean stop giving feedback, but stop assigning a grade to so many things, folks. Make more of your classes work formative rather than summative, which means you're checking to see if they understand, not testing them on the recall of it. If a student feels like every single thing they're doing could affect their grade, they're going to be a lot more tense and a lot more resistant to experimentation or taking any risks, and we've already established both of those are, frankly, necessary for better learning. So a few ways to do this include using mastery-based grading, where students are allowed to revise their work until they meet the standard, or designating only certain assignments to have actual grades that count toward the final class grade and returning assignments with feedback, but no grade or evaluation on them. This encourages students to actually pay attention to the feedback, which focuses their attention on learning instead of grade. To reduce your grading load, you can also use the one in four rule, which means you're only going to give in-depth feedback on one out of every four assignments, or peer feedback, where you distribute a rubric and you let students grade each other's work. And this last one also helps students learn to be impartial And it allows them to see that other people also make mistakes, that it's not just them.
1: Oh, for our experiences with this, I tell my students whenever we read a book or an article for a class, we only see the final version. The version we read is the version that passed all of the proofreaders and all of the editors. We don't know that the author wrote the chapter, the book, the article in this order. We don't know that they started with their intro and then they wrote their body in a conclusion. They may have started by writing some of their ideas for the body and then tacked on an intro and conclusion, right? Just by the time they submitted it for publication, they decided here's how they wanted to organize it. I like to show students early drafts of my own work if or when they ask so that my students can see how ideas change from an initial rough draft and go through a process to becoming a final draft. All of the reorganization, the rephrasing, the deletions, the additions, all that fun stuff. And I tell my students that their rough draft should not be polished, because so many of them are almost embarrassed when they submit. They go, it's not perfect. I don't want it to be perfect. It's a rough draft. A rough draft is spewing ideas onto the screen. The polishing happens when we reorganize and we edit. What goes where? What am I repeating too much? Do I need to keep the repetition in? What do I need to elaborate on or expand on? And I tell my students, because so many of them get frustrated and they get down on themselves for hitting writer's block, I tell them, congrats. You are just like just about every other author who's ever lived and written join the club. And two, hopefully they can see that both their professors and their peers also hit writer's block. And if their professors and their peers hit writer's block, then they know they are not alone. And that should hopefully take away some of the shame or some of the pressure they feel. When we work through writer's block, we're trying to generate ideas. And that's part of the rough draft thinking, or rough draft process, because this struggle forces students to deal with both a new skill, which is college level writing, and they're dealing with new material. It's students building up their skills toward competence or excellence and building skills takes time, no matter how much students and their professors may want it to happen immediately.
0: So I've got two stories. One is about math and the other one is about writing back when i was in grad school i used to plan out all of the equations i was going to do on the board you know obsessively making sure that i had them done right making sure that i hadn't made any mistakes in arithmetic which is the bane of my existence for reasons i've gone into in other episodes and i had one that i had basically done completely wrong in my prep so i had all the steps written out and they were wrong and i got about halfway through it and a student put his hand up and said uh adam you've just added nine to seven and you came up with 18 and that's not right, is it? And of course this destroyed the entire equation because nine plus seven is not in fact 18. And I didn't know what to do because I had no idea how to do math on the fly. It was just not part of my skill set; It never had been. I was terribly embarrassed and I had about four students come up to me after class and say, don't feel bad. I make more mistakes than that in my homework but i felt like i had totally undermined you know their confidence in me and their ability to trust me and i made a point in the next uh, section of saying i want you to know that we all grade all of your work together we're all required to grade the same work and so there are three of us three tas and we trade around and make sure that none of us have made mistakes in grading so i just want you to know you can still be confident in the grading because it's not uh, there are people checking me but it was terribly embarrassing to do that and i realized then that early in my career that I had to get a better handle on mistakes. And so I started doing a lot of reading on what mistakes are and how they function and why we make them at all. And of course, it's so that we can learn by trial and error. And then when it comes to writing, a lot of students really, really, really passionately believe in the good writer, you know, that person who writes the perfect paper in one draft. So to counteract this, I tell my students, kind of like Dinor does, I tell them, you know, it took me 13 drafts to get my dissertation to the point where my committee felt it was ready for defense. And then I also tell them, because I don't think that I'm convincing enough, just, you know, so I'm, I'm your professor, big deal. But I tell them that Stephen King, a very well-known fiction writer, normally goes through about six drafts before he ever even shows a draft to his editor. Six drafts. And they look at me like, wait, what? This is Stephen King you're talking about, yes. I also talk about some of the mistakes that he's been open about making. For example, in his book on writing, he talks about how, you know, in his early work and even now, he gives the third draft to people who are his fact checkers on certain topics that he doesn't feel particularly strong about. For example, a lot of his earlier work was set in rural Maine. Well, in rural Maine, you're going to have people using guns to shoot, you know, game so that they have food for the winter, Right. But he didn't know a 22 from a 223. And so he had a friend at the school that he was working at, the prep school, who was this older man, and let's call him Dave, because I don't remember the name, uh, who apparently looked an awful lot like Santa Claus. You know, big white beard, you know, button nose, the whole bit. And Dave was an expert on guns. And so whenever Stephen King wrote a story or a novel that had a gun in it, he always gave it to Dave to proofread it. Basically, to be his gun checker and make sure that everything he said about a gun wasn't something that a gun enthusiast would laugh at him about, right? So he walks into the faculty lounge about two days after having given Dave his mimeographed copy <laughs> of Salem's Lot, which was his second big book that he, you know, he did carry, and then the next one was Salem's Lot, his vampire novel. And he walks in, and Dave has the manuscript sitting in front of him, and he's just cracking up. And for those of you who haven't read it, Salem's Lot is not a comedy. There's almost no comic relief in the entire book. King had not yet learned that when you write horror, you got to put a funny in there every now and then. So Stephen King was quite concerned. He's looking at his friend cracking up over his extremely frightening vampire novel. And he says, Dave, why are you laughing? And Dave says, you're so lucky that you let me read this before you sent it out to anyone else. And he's like, oh, God, what mistake did I make on the guns? Well, it turned out it wasn't a mistake on the guns at all. It was in the second or third chapter, he was setting the scene for this is rural Maine. This is a tranquil place, and there's all these rural people who are out there and they go hunting in the in the in the fall so that they have food for the winter. And Dave picked up a red pen and circled one word and handed the sheet to, to Steve and he was still snickering. And Stephen King looks at this and what he had apparently written more than once, too, he made it was a it was a consistent error that he couldn't blame on a spell checker because he'd written this on a typewriter. And it said that the people of rural Maine will be out shooting peasants for their winter food. He left the H out. He meant pheasants, but he wrote peasants. And Dave said to him, I thought that this was a vampire story. I didn't know it was a cannibalism story. He says, it's not, thanks. You know, so then he went like over his entire manuscript with a gimlet eye and he, and he didn't have the ability to search because word processors weren't a thing in 1974 or 75 or whenever it was, he was writing this. And so, When I tell my students this story, they say, Stephen King, the famous writer, made spelling errors like that? And I said, yes. And I will bet you that every famous writer you know has had the same problem. So I tell them about the mistakes that he made because he's such an obvious example of someone who is a, in their heads, a good writer, right? The person who produces the perfect first draft. And I tell them about some of the mistakes I've made, too. And some of my mistakes are really funny. So the students can see they're not alone and that everyone makes mistakes. And the feedback that I'll get in their journals, their reflection journals about this is just fascinating. So many students will say things like, I never would have thought someone as good as Stephen King would ever have any problems writing. That blows my mind. Or I'm really surprised to find out everyone struggles with this, that it's not just me. And a very common theme is it really helped me to hear my classmates talking about their own struggles with writing, which is what I have them do during my writer's workshops. I list a bunch of problems and then I say, okay, how many of you have at least one of these problems? And every hand goes up. And I say, look around. You're not alone. But we've got to let students know that because otherwise what happens is they fixate on, you know, on the mistake being the worst thing in the world, that, you know, that their entire academic career is going to be trashed if they screw up anything, if they get any bad grade. And I still blame, even now, my elementary school experience where they say, if you get a bad grade, it's going to go on your permanent record. How many of us are still carrying around the scar of the permanent record? You know what the permanent record was? It never followed you out of grade school. But most of us still think, oh, the permanent record, if I get an F in this class, that's a permanent record. It's not on the permanent record. (laughs) It's gonna be on your transcripts, but it's not going to kill your life. It's not going to ruin your life just because you failed one class. And we've gotta make that idea, that feeling of it's okay to make mistakes. Mistakes help you learn they're not the end of the world. We've got to normalize that, folks. So
1: that's what we have for you in episode 147. If you're finding this podcast helpful, please share it with your friends. We're always hoping to get new subscribers so we can help even more people. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Android. We've decided to no longer publish this podcast to Spotify. So if you found us on Spotify, please take a look at Apple Podcasts or other podcast apps instead. We're hosted on Blueberry.com. Also, we would really appreciate it if you wrote a review for this podcast on Apple Podcasts.
0: And be sure to join us next week for episode 148, when we'll talk about how to help students focus on learning instead of on grades. You've been listening to Learning Made Easier, a podcast about how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. We want to say thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. If you want to support us, please go to www.patreon.com slash learning made easier.
1: We look forward to seeing you next week.